You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome, 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 my spooky little bat. I'm TK, your history BFF and tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, weird history, and spooky history for the month of October. How was my spooky voice? Was it pretty good? I can be a very spooky lady when I choose to be, but I don't think I would win in a scare-off against our subjects for today, because we are talking about witches from around the world. Some are regular spooky, and some will have their henchmen demons possess dead babies. So, uh, Yeah, proceed with caution for this episode. I would not advise listening to this at night or do if you're a little thrill-seeker like I am. But whatever time of day you decide to listen to this episode, I would suggest that you grab something to protect yourself from demon babies. And let's get to it. This is the time of year when the witchy aesthetic comes out and people start in on their Salem witchy shenanigans and all that good spooky ooky American witch history. And although I do love the classic American witch, I got to thinking to myself after the Japanese witchcraft episode a while back, what are witches like in other countries? Do they ride brooms? Were slash are they healers? Can they wiggle their nose and have the whole house clean like I dream of genie? Well, I guess she is a genie, but you, you, you get my point, okay? <laughs> so I did what any curious cat does, and I consulted the modern-day seeing stone, Google. And goodness golly, my little ghost friend, did I find what I was looking for. Today, we're going to talk about witches from three different places. The Philippines the West Indies, and Mexico. So without further ado, let's talk about witches in the Philippines. Mangukulam. Christianity is the majority faith in the Philippines, making up approximately 90% of the population. The latest numbers are Catholic, followed by Protestant Christians. But before Spanish colonization, Each region had its own local religion and witchcraft practices. This type of sorcery was documented as early as the 17th century by Francisco Combes. We're going to go with that. Now, we'll be using the present tense in this section today because there are still many practitioners of magic and healing in the rural areas of the Philippines. Kulam is the old belief in black, malevolent magic, the kind of magic that is exclusively used to exact revenge. Practitioners of Kulam, called Mangukulam, are vastly different depending on their regional culture, ethnic group, and role in the community. They can be any gender, but one thing that is constant is these Mangukulam should not be trifled with. Among the Magukulam, there are healers and true sorcerers. Both of them deal exclusively in black magic and curses. But the healers can justify their curses as criminal punishment because of the widespread belief that Kulam cannot harm the truly innocent. So basically, if you get cursed, it's because you deserve it. 
They go after people like cheating spouses, thieves, people who steal land or make bad deals, just like general asshats, not quite human garbage level. So these healer sorcerers are the ones people go to and pay to curse people who did them wrong. But there are more malicious mangukulam who don't care who they hurt. Justice does not factor into their practice. They are the evil witches that have the ability to harness the power of creatures like Aswang and Mananangal, shapeshifters and demons. Their craft is much like voodoo in that they use effigies, but unlike voodoo, there is no healing in this magic. They use beetles, effigies, seawater, and herbs, and their powers range from boiling water to cause the victim unimaginable stomach pain, to sending familiars to steal a soul, or even inflict instant death with a single curse. And sometimes, very rarely, the real, real bad ones send their little demon familiars to steal the souls of babies, to possess babies. Bananas. And although Christianity is the majority religion in the Philippines, superstitious folks still attribute certain illnesses or diseases to Kulam. So if you ever find yourself in the unforgiving clutches of a Mangu Kulam, it's best to seek help from an Albularo, a real healer, and have them perform a counterspell before it's too late. A person might turn to Obe if he yearns to see his competitor's business fold, or if he wants to clinch a promotion, or if he needs a spell that will make him irresistible to the opposite sex. Man's scientific advancements may have taken him to the moon, but witchcraft remains alive and hexing in the West Indies. Peace of mind is still something to be worn around your neck. That, my little pumpkin spice perfection, is an excerpt from a 1972 publication in the New York Times. And I thought it would be the perfect introduction to our next witch, the Obe of the West Indies. According to Marguerite Fernandez Almos, a professor of Spanish and Latin American literature at Brooklyn College, and Elizabeth Paravicini Gebert, a Puerto Rican um, academic who specializes in the research of the Caribbean, Obe is not a religion so much as a system of beliefs rooted in Creole notions of spirituality, which acknowledges the existence and power of the supernatural world. By the way, Creole is a person of mixed European and black descent, especially in the Caribbean. Just FYI. Okay. Okay. So, Obe incorporates two categories of practice, spells, both good and evil, and healing practices based on using elements in nature. Again, the practice of Obe is an ongoing one, so we'll be using present tense. Practitioners of Obe are believed to be born with the gift often passed down from generation to generation. 
And if not born with a gift, they have training that gives them the powers and knowledge of Obe. Most of the information we have about the Obe, like our opening statement, are written from the perspective of colonizers, which we must keep in mind because it has a very negative and dark history when looked at through that lens. But when we shift our perspective, we can see that the practice of Obe was a source of comfort, stability, and resistance for those in the West Indies who were kidnapped and forced into slavery. The practice of Obe is very similar to the practice of Voodoo or Voodoo, and some people believe that Voodoo and Voodoo come from Obe, but that's not clear. Both the practice of Obe and Voodoo use a lot of effigies, a lot of healing practices, spells, cleansing, herbs, and are very much linked with nature. And the colonizers were terrified of it because it gave the people of the West Indies strength. In 1760, it became outright illegal and punishable by death to practice Obe in Jamaica after the Tacky Rebellion, which was when a man named Tacky, an alleged practitioner of Obe, led a group of enslaved people to revolt. It was said that he gave them a magical preparation that was supposed to render them invulnerable to the weapons of the authorities. And the authorities got real scared because that rebellion got real far and they criminalized Obe real fast. But these laws did not eradicate Obe as planned. They simply went underground and developed in different ways. Obe became a source of comfort and literally saved lives because Obe practitioners have extensive knowledge of herbs and nature things to make medicines and cures that were not available to them otherwise. Obe is now highly personalized and can take on many forms. Spells, chants, herbal concoctions, protection jars, all kinds of amulets, enchanted items, and much, much more. If you do a cursory search of Obe, the images that come up are warped. The practitioners are villains. They're very much like the Shadow Man in The Princess and the Frog. They're here to do terrible things to everybody who asks them for help. But this is not always the case. Of course, there were dark Obe, but for the most part, the primary function of an Obe practitioner is that of a healer. Their job is to provide protection from the spirits that inhabit the world of the living. The saint without bias or prejudice who welcomes those the church rejects. Nuestra Señora de la Santa Muerta translates to Our Lady of the Holy Death. And this short podcast can't even begin to cover the nuances of her entire story, of none of these witches' entire story. But I'm going to do my best to give you the most important points, like I always do. And if we just take a quick, quick digression, okay? La Santa Muerta herself is, is not technically <laughs> a witch, 
but lots of pseudo-Catholic and witchcrafty goings-on happen in her honor and are used to worship her. So that's why she's included in our list. And you voted for her. So who do we have to blame here? (laughs) Still me. Still me. So there's a little caveat on this one, but she's so interesting. I'm really glad that you chose her in the poll on Instagram. So anyways, go back to our topic. (laughs) Her exact origins are unknown, but the leading theories are, number one, she's a folk saint, a mix of Catholicism and pre-colonization traditions. And number two, she is a reincarnation of, now I'm going to do my best here, and I have tried to find pronunciations of how to say this Aztec goddess's name, and they're all terrible robot voices. So let's do this together. Mixteca Sihuatl. Mixteca Sihuatl. Mixteca Sihuatl. M-I-C-T-E-C-A-C-I-H-U-A-T-L. Mixteca Sihuatl. We did our best. We have the best intentions. So, Mixteca Sihuatl was an Aztec goddess involved in death rites. But wherever she came from, she is now the enemy of the state and the Catholic Church. TK, what? The Mexican government doesn't like her? Oh, yes, friend. The government, the military, the Catholic Church, and the DEA. The U.S. Department. Nope, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. They don't like her. Not a La Santa Muerta fan. And I hear you asking, why? How? And what the heck? All excellent questions. Let's dive into it. In the early to mid-1900s, the worship and rituals surrounding La Santa Muerta were very benign. Very low-key, very private. La Santa Muerta didn't have a huge following at all. People asked her for protection to help find love, to help heal broken hearts, all that fun stuff. Just general good vibes and protection. Then she all but disappeared after the 1960s when most people kind of forgot her and if they remembered her, they worshipped privately in their homes. But in the early 2000s, something changed. Drug cartels started worshipping her. What? How's that for an M. Night Shyamalan twist? Drug cartels? Yeah, I know. It's a whole thing. The image of her appealed to them, and the idea of protection appealed to them, and the worship of La Santa Muerta took off. It really started in the prisons and in the city of Tepito in Mexico, and then quickly spread to Mexico City, and now is being found in the U.S. But it's not only drug dealers who worship La Santa Muerta. The LGBTQIA community in Mexico has also gravitated toward her. They are flat out rejected and persecuted and harmed by the Catholic Church, the Mexican police, and the government in general, but are welcomed by La Santa Muerta. Anybody who has been rejected by society is welcomed by the saint 
of death. Her whole thing is protection and success, and she doesn't care a lick about who you are, who you love, or what you did in your past. Her only requirement is that you offer up what is precious to you. You give her thanks, and in return, she grants your wishes. Okay, but why does the Catholic Church and the government hate her, TK? Well, after reading way more Catholic news articles than I have in my whole life, or I care to ever do again, I can tell you they denounce her because her very existence is apparently an extreme form of heresy. What? People came to her to ask for favors. Excuse me, people come to her to ask for favors that they wouldn't ask of God. For example, the drug cartels ask her to protect them while they traffic drugs and they kill people. So they're being sneaky and putting this saint over God and asking for protection from doing bad things that God apparently has said that we cannot do. The Catholic Church literally thinks that she is a demon and that people who worship her are possessed. And that has caused a banana sandwich rise in exorcisms in Mexico. Now do you see why I included her on the list? This is bananas. There has been an all-time high of exorcisms performed by the Catholic Church in Mexico. It's crazy. I think I I was watching a documentary about this, and one Catholic priest? Priest? Father? I don't know. I was Catholic once. I am not anymore, and everything is just slipped out of my mind. Priest? Yes. Sure. One priest performed over 200 exorcisms in one month. I will link that documentary that I was watching in the show notes so that you can go watch it. It is absolutely banana sandwich. So that's why the Catholic Church doesn't like her. And the DEA doesn't like her for obvious reasons. You know, her very strong drug cartel links. The U.S. and Mexican DEA both have extensive training on how to spot La Santa Muerta worshippers because they could be cartel. There's active programs to stomp out the now cult of La Santa Muerta. But that hasn't stopped her from becoming the second most popular saint in all of Mexico. Well, my lovely little Loch Ness Monster, we have come to our final thought of the day, and it has almost nothing to do with our topic. But I found out while I was researching that the DEA has a freaking museum. What? I know. I know. My mind was blown, and I was like, okay, History BFF really, really needs to know about this. And I'm sure you're wondering two things right this very second. I feel the thought coming in through our History BFF ESP. TK, how did you discover this? And what the heck is inside of this museum? As always, excellent question. First of all, I found it while researching La Santa Muerta. Because the DEA made a gigantic drug bust and found a ton of meth inside a giant La Santa Muerta statue. And I realized I forgot to, I failed, I failed to mention what she looks like. She's basically like if 
the Virgin Mary had a skeleton face. That's exactly what she looks like. And I will put a picture of her up on Instagram because you need to see it. Anyways, giant La Santa Muerta statue. Full of meth. <laughs> so silly. And it was the featured article of the month in this year in April. Yeah. Yeah. The DEA Museum has a whole ass monthly video series. <laughs> I don't know why I find this so funny. They have more than 5,000 objects, 40,000 photographs, and an online video archive that all tell the history of drug law enforcement. They have things like green platform shoes, a DEA special agent war during an undercover investigation of cocaine in the 1970s. <laughs> they also have a tablet press, which is a machine that compresses powder into tablets of uniform size and weight. They've got everything. They've got a bunch of exhibits, including one about cannabis, coca, and poppy seeds, which is wild, absolutely wild. And the exhibits rotate quite frequently. There's new stuff there all the time. You can take your students there. I love it. I am officially obsessed with the DEA Museum. And now you know that the DEA has a museum, and I feel that we're all the better for it. Well, my friend, that is all she wrote. Thank you so much for joining me in episode two of season four. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and if you did, why not tell somebody about it? Tell your other history BFF, or tell me by leaving a rating and a review. Our goal is still 100 ratings and reviews. It's still going strong. I'd, I fingers crossed that we can get it by the end of this season. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can head over to Patreon where we're doing a lot of fun things. Our first Sleepy History episode is out and this week patrons will get to decide our bonus episode. You can also get discounts on merch by becoming a member. Oh, and by the way, there's totally merch. Great merch, if I do say so myself. And I do. I'm currently wearing some For the Love of History merch right now. We've got everything from hoodies to crop tops, tank tops, t-shirts, flip-flops, thermoses, and so much more. But it's always no pressure to do any of those things. Just you listening is fantastic. And if you'd like to send me a message about what you thought of this or any other episode, please feel free to do so. And before we go... Do something that makes you happy this week, that fills up your love bucket, fills you with delicious autumn joy. Give yourself a big hug, drink your water, and I will see you next week when we talk about the Rhode Island Vampire Panic. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs>